people's expectations for certain products and brands or product experiences, it's not matching what they're actually experiencing. And I think that that disharmony causes people not to like it and they don't make that second purchase because that's what product failure is. It's not making that second purchase. Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Well, we're back again with PhD behavioral neuroscientist, Michelle Nedula. She is an expert at psychology, neuropsychology, and consumer science. Last time she was on the show, she shared her experiences working for Mars Chocolate and Johnson & Johnson's R&D teams doing consumer research. She also shared how electroencephalograms work, that's the EEG brain scans, and how they use them during consumer research. So excited to talk about emotions and taste and smell and how all those experiences can drive consumer behavior. Let's get into it. I mean, you know this more than anybody, how our smell triggers memories. Mm -hmm. and maybe good memories, maybe bad memories. And yeah. it's amazing how a product or even a store or just a brand experience can trigger a memory. And it, and it might not be smell too. It could be just the, the uh, proximity of things and just the color distraction. And Absolutely. there's so many factors to consider. And you have to think that it is important. There are certain things that are almost innate depending on the style of psychological theory that you are subscribed to the so when you think about like what causes different reactions and causes different emotions there's a lot of theories out there about what are drivers of emotions um, some people think that you know it's the physiology like you you see a bear and in the woods and your heart begins racing and then you start recognizing that as fear that other people think it's a little mm -hmm. more cognitive appraisal where, you know, you see the bear and the combination of identifying that it's a scary bear and, um, you know, the heart racing, the combination of those two you've learned is fear. Well, there's also just understanding that um, in thinking about how complicated that whole learning process is, like, how do we understand emotions? Right. How do emotions work when it comes to a brand experience? Yeah. So when we do see, you know, those certain colors or we have those certain smells that are around us, often they act as cues for us to, if you think from evolutionary psychology, it's all about survival, right? So again, you identify that scary bear and what should your reaction be? And I think that's what a lot of the drivers we have, because a sense of smell, the most important thing for you for your sense of smell is to be able to smell whether or not something is, for example, not edible, right? Mm -hmm. Is this going to kill me? Right. You know, did someone leave the gas on and I'm going to choke on poisonous it's, gas? It's very primal. It's a very primal. Very primal, um, very evolutionary survival right. instinct. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what your senses are most like basically for. Right. So then when we think about, again, perception is reality, when we're creating these experiences and curating these experiences, we do have to remember that to some degree. Right. Especially when we're measuring things, we've certainly had people that were interested, for example, in 
using facial coding to pick on facial coding again, Mm -hmm. using facial coding to examine people that were smelling laundry detergents. And laundry detergent. So if you think about the facial expressions someone might make when they are smelling something, um, there's a lot of problems with that using facial coding, but facial coding is based on the six basic emotions. Um, and those are very limited to what are almost like evolutionary communication-based emotions. So do I need to signal to you that you're not a threat? Well, I smile. I'm not going to hurt you, right? I smile and you instinctively actually smile back. You can't help it, you know? So it's part of like an evolutionary idea of communication. So when we think about using a tool like that to measure something like a smell, we have to recognize that the first reaction is probably going to be a negative one if it's something you shouldn't eat, right? (laughs) So it might be a bit of a, right? Um, because your first response is going to be, I should not eat this. I need to signal to other people that mm. they should not eat this as well. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And so like that, that's the sort of thing you have to think about again, when choosing a methodology is what exactly is it telling me, you know, interpreting those results can be quite complicated because that first reaction might be kind of negative because we don't want to eat it, but then, you know, it might turn into, it's a pleasant smell. It smells clean et cetera, and so on. And you might have a more positive reaction afterwards, but that's a complicated situation, right? So, but all it was, was smelling a laundry detergent, which shouldn't be very complicated, right? Do you like it or do you not? And that kind of gets back to when I'm deciding on different methodologies to use, you got to start with the research question. If it is just, do you like it or not? Do you want to buy it? Just ask the person. Don't throw in any complicated measures because you're just going to overcomplicate the situation. Maybe get something you don't want. Yeah, well, that's true. And and that'll open up your eyes to maybe something that you might need to change as far as your product goes. Um, but, but any of your research has to be unbiased. How do you maintain an unbiased study? <laughs> so the first problem with any research is that it's inherently biased. As soon as humans touch anything, it's going to be biased in some way. So I always like to keep that in mind because a lot of times, you know, I've talked pretty poorly about Um, facial coding, for example, right? But facial coding is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? It's measuring the changes on the face. And that is no fault of the, the methodology itself. It's how we interpret it, right? So the second that a human is involved, which is really from the get-go of design, <laughs> you can have bias, right? So by selecting who you want to measure, oh, you know, I only want to select people who use this product. All right, now we have no idea about people who don't use it. Um, so that's going to be biased. Um, then when I interpret the data, I can see, you know, you can use statistics, but then you choose those statistics, right? And, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over, you know, p-value testing and and p-phishing as they call it, you know, and just, you know, whether or not that is valid and if it is biased. Um, So even when you're doing mathematical and statistical approaches, there can be bias in that. But that's not the end of it. You ultimately have to make some sort of decision based on that data. So you've done your statistics and now you're going to interpret and say, well, this one is statistically more significant for liking. So, you know, we're going to go with it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to purchase it. It doesn't mean that it performed better in any other capacities. So there's going to be bias everywhere. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. So you've got smell, touch, taste, sight, uh, hearing from your experience. Does one sense have more control over decision-making than another? Hmm. That's an interesting question. 
I think, I think people are very reliant on their sight, right? Because especially now when we're thinking about how we interact with the world, it's through screens, right? So I think a lot of decisions are made visually. Um, but when you actually encounter that product and a huge piece that I think that people often forget about, especially in marketing, people are so much focused on the decision on the first purchase, but arguably more important is the second purchase, right? So ensuring that the product experience is building enough of a positive experience of a rewarding experience that people want to purchase it again, I think becomes very important. And when you bring in that product experience, that's going to now involve touch. It's going to involve smell. It's going to involve the sound. All of these things start becoming part of it. And I have this feeling that now that we are moving away from 30 second commercials, right? Where people used to have, used to be forced to watch commercials. Uh, yes. Because you couldn't, you know, fast forward through it. You right. couldn't, you know, <laughs> choose to skip ad. These weren't things that some of us, you know, grew up with. My, oh, okay. my kids now, like they don't understand advertising. They've never really had to watch it. <laughs> the torture of it, the torture and you take a bathroom break. <laughs> the torture of it, the torture that if you step away, you're going to miss your show because you can't rewind. Yes, right? yeah. <laughs> um, and so we used to be forced to watch 30 second ads. We're not forced to do that anymore. We are maybe if we see an ad, it's through social media. It's a very different communication that we have going on. And so we're missing a lot of the context that would come from seeing a full 30 seconds. Okay. So if it's boiled down into just six seconds or however long it takes you to swipe, right, to get rid of whatever the communication is, you have to reach people in a way that is engaging enough to either hold their attention and make them want to stay on it past that six seconds, um, you know, that YouTube is requiring you to watch, you know, or, you know, just how can we draw people in? Well, I think there really is something to be said for like evoking both emotion and sensory, like evoking actual sensory from a picture. And I think we've all kind of seen it in memes, right? And I think a huge way of communication right now is through memes because Memes are such a boiled down version of an overall concept that really evokes emotion. It evokes a whole story behind it through just one image, right? And I think that memes can even evoke some other sensory things. You know, you may have seen memes that show like a picture of a 1970s living room and they say, you know, oh, I can smell this picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can, right? Um, a picture can evoke sensory. So I think the idea of like sensory memes, emotional memes is really going to be like how things move forward in the future and think about how we engage consumers. Because we do know from research that when you engage more of the senses, you have a stronger emotional connection with the consumer. And that leads to overall a stronger brand loyalty, yeah. stronger brand equity. So there is definitely academic research that's showing that. So if we can create a cohesive experience that we can signal to people through social media memes, even, you know, as a means of marketing, evoking emotions, evoking sensory feelings, um, I think that that is going to be an important way to move forward into this new world of, you know, web three or, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, the metaverse, right? Um, we're going to be 
interacting mostly with our world, world through screens. And so being able to evoke even beyond visual, because I think ultimately to reach people and engage with people, you are going to have to evoke the, the more sensory based experiences. Wow. That's very challenging. Absolutely. So for yeah. those of you who are listening, who are creating a product, you, I mean, you've got to think about the experience on the other end of that screen, whether it be your website, the social media engagement that you're putting out that campaign. And maybe that's, I mean, I don't know, I'm not the expert at this, but maybe that's how you focus your branding efforts. Right. More so than the actual product. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, ultimately the question, the person experiences the product ultimately, right? And like I said before, maybe that second purchase is more important than that first purchase. Um, So I think, honestly, it has to be both sides. And this is where an interesting problem arises, where when you look at companies, brand companies and product companies, they uh, often, the marketing side doesn't actually talk to the product side. So the R&D side, they're doing research separately. And they don't always meet in between. So a lot of the work we do at HCD is trying to connect the two pieces of what's going on in the marketing and testing in the marketing to make sure that the ads are effective. But then also on the other side, making sure that the product is conveying what you want it to. But ultimately, does the product meet the promise? So when marketing is saying this, 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 it's an emotional experience over here. Um, Is the product actually doing that? Yes, I feel like um, the episodes of the interviews that I've been having, that seems to resonate in every mm-hmm. single one is being authentic, being honest, being transparent, because that's how you build trust with your audience. That's how you get that buy-in and get that repeat experience. Because, you know, if I go get a burger at a restaurant and then it's, I think it's the most amazing gourmet, fancy gastropub burger I've ever had. And then I go back again on a Friday afternoon and it's the most disgusting, fancy gastropub burger I've ever had. Like there's no consistency. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to tell people you're probably not going to go back. You're going to do the thinking in my head. Well, when did I, when was it really good? Was it on a Monday afternoon or was it on a Friday afternoon? And never go on a Friday. Yeah. And and so, (laughs) so that, that type of brand perception is important too. And then it always goes back to word of mouth being the best form of advertising. It is so true. And for me, I personally think that that might be more important than being advertised to, more important than the social media mark messages to evoke my emotion. What's going to evoke my emotion is you tell me a real life story of your experience with something. Uh, That's why people read reviews. Yeah. And that can be very effective, which is maybe why, you know, people have become so reliant on, um, you know, the influencers, right? They want to hear from real people, but even that's kind of been corrupted a bit, right? Because now you have paid influencers. I mean, you can pay very little money to buy an influencer to say something for you for like a couple hundred bucks, you know? So like really, you know, taking all that, you know, you talk about authenticity. That's a really hard thing to measure. Like, how do you measure if something is authentic? Well, for us, we try to incorporate both the perceptions that people have as well as the emotions that they feel. And I think it can become a really interesting place when you have this disparity again between the marketing and the actual product experience. So if you think of what people are used to experiencing with Buick, for example, I think that this ends up being an interesting 
case study because I think people mostly think of it as being like their grandparents' car, et cetera, but they've made a huge marketing push and design push, right? So both marketing and product development to create something that's more modern. So there's a huge push with messaging saying, you know, it's not your dad's Buick. It's not your grandfather's Buick. And the design itself has become more sporty. But then you take something like um, Volvo. Volvo came out with a whole um, marketing plan to become more adventurous and sporty. But when you think about Volvo, you're thinking safe car, right? And you're thinking of that station wagon and they didn't change so much of the design of it themselves or really, you know, what people were experiencing in the car, because it still feels very safe. But the marketing was all like adventure and showing people trekking through the woods in their Volvo. And it just doesn't really resonate. It doesn't match, right? You have a disharmony going on there. And so I think there, that can drive a lot of the success and failures of new products and, and marketing plans. The product experience doesn't match. And then when you get to food, that 80% of new market introductions actually fail. That's a huge number. And that's a, a just an unbelievable amount of lost money, right? Just, you know, in the creation of those new products and the the marketing that went behind them, a ton of money is just being lost. And what is going on there? What is causing this like failure in market? I think a lot of it is that miscommunication between marketing and R&D where you don't have brand harmony. You don't have that people's expectations for certain products and brands or product experiences. It's not matching what, they're actually experiencing, you know, and I think that that disharmony causes people not to like it and they don't make that second purchase because that's what product failure is. It's not making that second purchase. Nobody's going to buy this again, right? Man, you're preaching it. Failure is not getting that second purchase, not getting that second buy. Yeah, I think so. And it's the hardest thing to measure really, which is being able to predict. And I think that's what a lot of clients out there really want. They want to find a way to predict market success. None of the metrics that are currently used, whether in marketing or in product development and consumer research are good predictors of, of that. Like how, how can, you know, there's all sorts of different scores out there that people use, but they're terrible at predicting actual behavior. But when we think about how a product's actually going to perform, we take a very brand harmony approach. So we really want to measure that marketing to make sure that it matches the, the product experience because we find when you have that satisfied consumer where their expectations are actually being met, you have someone who likes the product more. So when we do that measurement after, after they've experienced the product, um, that's where we find the most success, where everything works together in harmony. Um, and I think that that will ultimately lead to better market success. So you mentioned food failing. Um, mm -hmm. Do you find that, okay, is it because it's perishable? Is it because there's so many variables in flavor or? It's fast. Um, I think, you know, yeah, a lot of times it's small changes. And so it's been, as far as like looking at the research on market failure, um, you can introduce a new product and it can come and go very quickly. Um, you know, and it's not a huge cost to the company to put out a varied flavor, 
right? Um, or, you know, a, a slight nuance on ingredients, or maybe even a new, a totally new product line launch, and then they can withdraw it if they have to, right? So it's very fast in that sense, as opposed to like a new car, right? So if you were to design an entirely new, you know, skew of car, then that's a lot of effort and a really longer game, right? So what, what would be harder, consumables or non-consumables? I think in some respects, I would think that non-consumables, uh, the more durable goods ends up being maybe a little more challenging because it is more of a, like a longer term sort of situation. So, but we are seeing, and you know, it's interesting when you look at the durable goods area, you are seeing a lot of innovation going on right now. And I think it's because of, you know, smart technology and advanced technologies that are really starting to be more incorporated. You know, so now you can talk to your faucet and tell it to give you a quart of water, right, at a specific temperature. And it, you know, it can do that. Your refrigerator can get on social media, you know, <laughs> like there are all these sort of new things are coming in. But what's interesting is the, the bulk of consumer research it's not done in that space. It's more often done in the consumables because it is, you know, more traditional to do that sort of research. So I often wonder when I see these smart faucets, for example, I start wondering, who did the consumer research on that? Is that really what consumers want, you know? And I'm not sure that that's all been fleshed out very well, to be honest. <laughs> I'm with Michelle Nedula of HCD Research. Stick around till after the break. You don't want to miss the discussion about the Pepsi Challenge and virtual cocktails. We're looking for inspiring expert guests and original musical artists. Think you have what it takes to be a part of the show? Please go to makingittomarket.com and apply. Making It to Market is a listener and sponsor-supported show. Want to help us out to keep the show going? Find out how in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Salve Naturals, the leader in cruelty-free, plant-based, and natural topical medicines with ingredients sourced from American farmers. These natural products are freshly handmade in the USA, Houston, Texas, to be precise. Please visit salvenaturals.com or check out Salve and the healthy living departments at HEB stores across Texas. Are you looking for high quality, professional grade nutritional supplements that you can only get with the help of an integrative health practitioner? Well, believe it or not, I'm actually a degreed health science and integrative medicine practitioner, and I'm able to extend my 15% off practitioner discount to you on over 350 professional grade brands. Plus, they gave you free shipping on $49 or more. Please visit wellevate.me slash Dahlia hyphen colada. ask to measure the most? Interesting. Um, the most of the work we do right now is associations. So, you know, for example, um, like, is it healthy? Is it for me? Is it, so we use a lot of um, implicit association type of work. When it comes to product performance, I would say things like whether or not it's relaxing, a relaxing experience, or whether it's an arousing experience ends up being 
very popular as well. Wow, that's interesting. Is there any data out there that tells you how quickly someone makes a decision? Yes. <laughs> it very much depends on the decision that's being made, right? So theoretically, people talk about how there are sort of systematic ways, a dual process theory of how you make decisions. There are decisions that are very easy to make, and those are considered like the system one. And then there are decisions that are more difficult to make, and those are your system two. But ultimately, it's a combination of the two, right? So there are fast decisions you make that you don't have to think about, right? You don't have to think about blinking your eyes. You automatically do that. Um, you do have to think about your budget when you're buying a new car, right? So it's going to take you a lot longer to decide whether or not to blink your eyes versus <laughs> buying a car. <Yeah. laughs> um, so in that sense, it is very dependent, right? <laughs> okay. Let's talk about addicted, addicting behavior and eliciting addiction. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, as you said, your product or your brand isn't successful unless there's a repurchase. So there's got to uh -huh. be some element of creating that. Well, you just mm -hmm. said the reward, the routine, the cues. But how wow. do we turn it into that's my <laughs> favorite brand and I will only buy this brand and I will only yeah. talk about this brand and I'm going to tell everyone about it. How do, how do you get yeah. that? How do you, how do you create, get yeah. to that tipping point to where... That is so well-known and a favorite. The easiest thing that we do is at the end of a survey, we will simply ask people, would you want more of this? You know, so let's say they tasted a yogurt or they used a home fragrance that they had to smell in a room. Um, would you use more of this? Is it just such a simple question and people can answer it pretty simply? You know, yes, I would. Yes, I'd love to have more of this yogurt. Um, nope, I'm not terribly interested. You know, would you like to take this home today? You know, um, and that can actually help predict whether or not people are going to reuse it. Right. But I think most of the research would support the idea that if you can build loyalty to that product or brand, um, and loyalty usually involves a combination of things like you have to have emotional engagement you have to have some sort of brand engagement. Um, you have to be differentiated from your competitors, mm -hmm. right? Um, in all sorts of different ways. So it couldn't, shouldn't be easy to replace you. Uh, when I talk about that sort of thing, I often talk about what's called the sensory footprint. So if you think of any brand, you can sort of map out the sensory footprint, right? So if you break down the senses, you know, you have taste, smell, touch, um, sight, um, sound, right? All five. And you take a brand, let's say Coca-Cola, let's say basic original Coke. And you break down for each one of those senses, how recognizable is it? Meaning how well differentiated is it from Pepsi, right? It's the main competitor. Well, on all five of those things, it's pretty well differentiated, right? Maybe sound is kind of similar, but you know, the, the look of the logo stands out. You can recognize it right away. The shape of the bottle is even different, mm -hmm. right? You might even argue that Pepsi is a little bit darker. Taste, absolutely recognizable. Yeah. Um, you know, all these things actually build an image for you. And the more sort of set and married you are to recognizing that brand based on the sensory footprint, I think the more loyal you become right? Especially if it also engages your emotions. 
um, and becomes part of your habit, right? So really thinks about adding in those emotional rewards. It gives you those cues for the sensory to be able to say, you know, oh yeah, you recognize this one, right? The cue is it's shaped like this, it's red, it's, you know, all these different things. Um, I think so being able to be so recognizable, being um, emotionally rewarding, uh, really helps build that brand loyalty. Well, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about grooming, not physical grooming, but grooming decisions and grooming behavior in children. When I was about maybe seven or eight years old, Pepsi and Coke had this like uh, guerrilla marketing thing to recruit kids, basically, because we're the next generation yeah. at that time, right? So they wanted to groom us into okay, what's the do? Can you do a taste test? Can you determine the difference between yeah. Pepsi and Coke? The Pepsi challenge. The Pepsi. Gosh, the Pepsi <laughs> challenge. <laughs> so, do were you? Pepsi challenge is a really like iconic consumer test for a couple of reasons. And this is really sensory related. So the Pepsi challenge was so iconic because it brings in some interesting things about brand loyalty, right? And the question of whether or not in consumer research, it is important to measure branding, the effect of branding within a study. So the Pepsi challenge was to taste the two beverages, Pepsi versus Coke, and rate which one you like. And the interesting part of that is people, even though Coke is the larger successful company than Pepsi in a lot of different ways, um, people liked Pepsi more. When tasted blind. Uh-huh. I did when right? I was a kid. It was a blind taste. You know blind, why? Why? Sweeter? It's sweeter. Yeah. People like sweet. If you add a sweet taste to it, people are going to like it more. And so if you do a blind taste test of Pepsi and Coke, people are simply going to like Pepsi more because it's sweeter. Now, the second you actually bring that branding back in and you show the brands, people are going to choose mm -hmm. Why do you think that? What is it about the Coca-Cola brand that does something? It's the power of that loyalty. It's the power of that recognition. It's the ownership they have of the space. Um, you know, they've built these things for so long. You think about kids, especially, you know, when you think about Santa and Coke, right? When you think of the images of the polar yeah. bears, like if they, if there's a huge emotional connection there and engagement that Coke just wins hands down. So the power of doing branded testing is you can't ignore and it. I remember when right? they did the the labels with your name. Do they still do that? Labels with their names on it? I think they yeah. do. Yeah. That's, wow. So being able to now, not only are you engaging it because, oh, it's me. It's my wow. name on there. You're buying it for someone else because you're like, you almost want to just do a picture with it and send it to your friend and be like, hey, I found you. I'm wow. drinking you. Well, it's, <laughs> you know? that, was so, that is so such a powerful move on so many ways because not only are you targeting the B2C consumer from making it personal experience, but now yeah. you're telling the stores to make more room on their shelves for the Coca-Cola brand <laughs> for more names. For more names. <laughs> really, really smart move. Yeah. I'm like very impressed. But it's also very cultural that a lot of cultures are really big on gifting right? So you don't go anywhere to meet up with anyone without gifting something. And then usually it's some sort of food product. So being able to gift a Coke is, you know, and that is a huge marketing um, campaign for them. That's been for a long time, you know, share, share a Coke, um, the huge campaign for many decades, just based on that idea. So the idea that you could find your friend's name and buy it and gift it, gifting is that huge. was such a powerful campaign. 
and very well executed. It, it's well executed until you go looking for the Dahlia Coke and you don't find it. <laughs> <laughs> A little more complicated now, which, you know, you do see that there are other words being used instead of just names. So there might be an action on it. It might say, you know, hope, which could be a name or it could be a feeling, mm-hmm. right? Wow. This is just a phenomenal branding that they did. Okay. So of all the different potential testings and brands and focus groups you could do, what has been your dream one? Have you, like, is there one that you really want to do that you haven't done? Of products or like types of testing? Anything you want. Like, what's been your dream that you Mm. haven't had a chance to do as far as being a neuroscientist, (laughs) consumer research expert? Oh my goodness. I've done so many different types of studies. I mean, I have studied anything from baby shampoo to chocolate, to sexual products, to um, feminine products, to ads. I mean, social media things. I can't think of a space that I haven't actually touched in some way, to be honest. Um, So is there a spot? Yeah, I actually, yes. I would say sensory tourism. Can I be a part of that focus group, please? (laughs) I'll do it for free. (laughs) Yeah, I think hospitality is just ripe for sensory marketing because you think about it, you know what New York sounds like and smells like and maybe even tastes like. You know what New Orleans smells like, you know? Yeah, it might smell like, you know, stale beer and cigarettes and pee, but it's recognizable, (laughs) right? So the idea of being able to like sort of evoke that in people, incorporate it in the marketing that you use for tourism, um, finding ways of people to bring that feeling home um, or maybe invite them to come based on that sort of feeling. I think there's a lot there. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Can I do that with you? When I'm serious. Like when that yeah. happens. <laughs> we can combine it. If we combined like sensory tourism with sensory memes, Ooh. I think that you got something there. Like experience grease through this meme I put on wow. Instagram. Wouldn't it be cool yeah. if our future electronic devices could put out smells too? Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, they do. Oh. They do? Yeah, they do. What? Yeah. So it's really interesting. There's some great researchers out in the University <laughs> of Maine, actually. Um, I can't remember his name. Nimesha is his first name. I can't remember his last name. Starts with an R. But he does a lot of virtual um, sensory type of work, and so he's even created a virtual cocktail that has like different types of electrodes and electrical pulses that can put in water. So it's like a martini, electrified martini Get glass out of town. that I could share with you, <laughs> and we could both taste the same thing, right? And it's just like different, like you know, electrical activity that is stimulating on your tongue um, to create like the lemonade taste or whatever it might be. So he talks about like virtual cocktails. Um, you know, they talk about being able to do that with, with smells as wow. well. Uh, I think you can even buy products that you can like plug into the USB of your computer and it can release certain fragrances throughout the day. So maybe it's like a relaxing fragrance that you need around 4 p.m. <laughs> Or maybe energizing at 3 p.m. because you start to get kind of tired, right? You're blowing my mind right now. This is amazing. I mean, I can see like the whole virtual food and smell and all that being really good for if you're trying to lose weight. Like I, I can yeah. see that. Or, use case. you know, you can imagine people that have trouble eating. So mm-hmm. maybe elderly that 
Um, you know, they're not as complying, have a lot of anorexia issues. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a way to make the eating experience more enjoyable oh. through these types of devices that can help encourage them higher caloric intake? Can you tell me about brands and their colors and the, what mm-hmm. colors evoke certain emotions and in and, and the yeah. color combinations, I mean, obviously the brands out there, they're not choosing a color because they like it. There's a reason why. Can you tell me a little bit more about color use? Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of research goes into it. I think that there, you know, there's definitely a lot on color theory, right? So, um, you know, like trying to say that like blue is calming or yellow or red might be more irritating. There's certainly a lot of work out there. But I would say it's very dependent on context, right? So in some contexts, red can be very soothing. In other contexts, it can be very irritating, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe anger-inducing. Yeah, and some people would say that it, they evoke certain very specific emotions. But I would say that it's very context-driven. Uh, when it comes to things like restaurants, for example, if you think about fast food restaurants, they use a lot more of these bold colors, yellows, reds, orange, harsh, you know, sharp, bright, because the idea is moving you quickly through. You're not supposed to want to stay there for a long time. Whereas if you're more in like a fancy French restaurant, you're meant to stay there for like three hours, right? So it should be softer. It should be more comfortable. So there's definitely something to being able to set a setting that's going to help you know, shape people's behaviors. Are they going to want to, you know, eat and go, or are they going to want to park it, you know, and like sit for a while and enjoy all the sensory inputs that they're getting. Um, but both could be read, right? But it all depends on that context. So you can certainly go to, you know, if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you might go to Budokan. Well, there's a lot of reds in there, but you're not meant to leave very quickly. You're meant to stay. So there's a lot of other aspects, a lot of sense, other sensory things that are part of it that kind of make you want more likely to stay longer. Mm-hmm. Wow. So like when selecting brand colors, what should I consider if I'm creating a new product line? Yeah. I think context is so important, right? So if you're talking about like a medication and you want it to be calming, certainly you want to have calming colors that actually fit the sort of emotional as well as contextual space. So we do a lot of this type of research where we will do logo testing, for example, where the colors might be changing or even the font might be changing and we're testing, well, what sort of implicit associations are people getting from something that's more curved versus something that's, you know, blue. And then being able to, you know, put that together also with the emotional experience, making sure that things are in the same emotional space. So if this brand is supposed to be very exciting as opposed to being relaxing, then the emotions that are evoked from that that color scheme or you know that font should really also be in that same space because they're if they're in opposing spaces, then it's gonna actually drive disliking, oh. you know, again, that disharmony that I talked mm-hmm. about before. So it is important to do that sort of testing and we do some of that as well. So if we're going back to the primal decision making, really, because that's what it sounds like, are people making decisions based off of the primal only? And how much of that is influenced by trending things like uh, the CBD, for example, there's a perception that CBD might do X, Y, Z for me. And then if I, if I match that CBD to my favorite drink, for example, my favorite beverage, 
Am I more inclined to make a purchase based off of the unique trending thing? Or am I going back to the primal decision making of that's my favorite brand, this is what I like? What, what do you see? It depends on you. So I think most of the research would suggest that there are segments of people that are going to be a little bit more risk takers in their decision making. And there's going to be people that are going to more likely want to stick with what they're more familiar with. And you know, not only is that kind of based on your own personality traits, but it's also based on certain heuristics that drive behavior. So again, about availability. So an example would be lottery tickets. If I read all these studies or not studies, but news articles that are saying that, you know, oh, local winner, right? Um, These people won. Oh, these people won. Your neighbor won. So-and-so won. Then I'm more likely, even though I should know better because I understand (laughs) statistics, I'm more likely to think that I could win. You know, because then that's the way a lot of the marketing goes. It says you could be the next winner. So-and-so won it. You could be the next. It doesn't say you're probably not going to be, which is the actual truth, right? right? But we use heuristics like that to be able to drive our decision making. So if we think it's happened before, we're like, it could happen again. Or we make, these are just the shortcuts we make because we are always trying to make the decision making more easy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it could be that we're taking information that we know. So for if we were to see a picture of a woman um, wearing a sparkly outfit and dancing in a club, are we more likely to think that she's a school teacher or a pop star? Mm-hmm. We're probably going to say pop star because of the setting. But honestly, statistically, she's more likely a school teacher, right? There are far more school teachers than there are pop stars. So thinking about how we use these little tricks and shortcuts to make decisions, recognizing that that's where our biases come Mm -hmm. from. Wow. Do you primarily work with advertising agencies? Like who hires what you're doing? Who hires that skill set of the consumer research? Everybody. (laughs) Um, predominantly I've always, I've tended to work in the R and D side because that's where my, my skill set comes from, but the company I work for HCD, they actually spent the past 30 years doing more communications research, which is more the marketing side ad research. Um, you know, so for over 30 years now, they've been doing more of that, but I came in eight years ago and said, Hey, you can do that and product research. So we do both. Um, I would say because of my sort of influence, I guess we're probably doing more R and D work than we have before, but I would suggest that, um, it's also because of what has happened in advertising research. So the bulk of quote unquote neuromarketing was ad research and, I think there was a lot of, like you suggested before, where someone was being a snake oil salesman, they were buying a cheap headset and they were over-interpreting results. And so there was a lot of disappointment. You know, if you were to search on Google, you would find a lot of articles that came out around 2014 and, and times around then where there was a lot of disappointment, a lot of skepticism and a lot of malpractice happening in, in neuromarketing. And so I think a lot of people that were jazzed by the idea of having neuroscience and psychology started to pull back from it around that time. And it was predominantly in the ad space because that's where people were selling it the most. But I would also argue that that was because they were, unfortunately, the people who were least likely to understand the science. Mm, interesting. 
right? So there aren't a lot of neuroscientists in advertising, right? In agencies. And so they're more artistic type of people or creative type of people. And so they were not likely to understand that that EEG headset was a bad EEG headset. So they were kind of bamboozled, right? So they're like kind of shying away from doing it. Whereas the R&D people are more likely to have a statistics background. They might have someone like me on staff. They might have a PhD in something, which even if it's not neuroscience, they have the ability to read scientific output. And so they understand it better and they can make sort of better choices in who they're using as a vendor or how the study's being designed, the questions that they want to ask. So I think there's been more success in R&D mm-hmm. in that sense and maybe for those reasons. But then another real factor is that there's some major changes having to go on in marketing, right? So with you know people, again, getting back to that idea of, you know, Web3 and the metaverse, advertising is not what it used to be, and it's never going to be that again. So all of these metrics and approaches to the way research was done, I mean, you can kind of throw them out the window at this point if people can just swipe left or right on something. You know, so really how we're reaching people, you know, through influencers, through social media, through memes, all those types of things really turns the whole ad industry on its head, I think. They have to really rethink how they can engage with people and communicate with people. And so I I think there's a lot of paradigm shift going on there. Michelle, today's conversation with you has been so enlightening and mind-blowing. I am so glad that you came back for a second time. To learn more about Michelle, check her out on LinkedIn or visit her company's website, hcdi.net. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please subscribe to Making It to Market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website, makingittomarket.com. Thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And a special thanks to our show sponsors and listeners. Without your support, I would not be able to do this. If there's a topic you'd like to hear, have a question or even a comment you'd like for me or today's guest to address, feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. If we air your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a free Making It to Market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference. Thank you.